Namo tassa pakavato arhato sama samputassa. Namo tassa pakavato arhato sama samputassa. Namo tassa pakavato arhato sama samputassa. Bhutang dhammang sankang namasam. So the full moon of July, Asalapucha, and tomorrow the beginning of Vas. And uh, David has taken the precepts for Anagarika. Congratulations and uh, nice that you learned it so well. And the, uh, in our Western Convention around days of significant days in a Buddhist calendar, this is sometimes called Dharma Day, or where we where we um, remember the the first teaching of Four Noble Truths. So in our Western calendar, we call Asala Puja Dharma Day, Visaka Puja in May, Full Moon of May. Buddha Day and February, full moon of February, Sangha Day. It's a kind of Western convention that we use. Mm, so it's one of the biggest days in the Buddhist calendar in Asia. So the monasteries would be packed out and there would be, again, Wabapong, Watnanachat, or in Sri Lanka, anywhere there. This would be you know, kind of equivalent to Christmas or Easter, that kind of gathering of people. So it's these full moon days we try to use as kind of markers in the year, marking our own commitments and remembering our structural form of precepts and communal agreements that we live by. We constantly remember those and then marking uh, significant events in the Buddhist calendar, remembering our aspiration, and just being a community coming together in these simple ways and is a good thing. Because it's not about individuality, it's about a tradition, it's about the commonality of our aspiration. As individuals then we have different ways that we interpret that aspiration maybe, or talk about it, and then we have our differences during the week. Mm. We have our different duties and different responsibilities and different ages of being in the sun, chronological ages. There are all those differences. And there is this, this commonality of, of um, aspiring to enlightenment and loving the Buddhist teaching and wanting to investigate it. It's just a common, common uh, bond, good bond, yoga. So David's commitment then is... Uh, we mark the date, the Asala Puja of 2016, and then Asala Puja 2017, it marks the bookends of a, of a, of a determination. And as I off, I've said to David and Matthew, it's a good to just make that the determination of just, just one year and see how it goes, rather than I want to do this for a lifetime, which is a good aspiration. But um, if, if, you, if you put up that determination to do this for a year, then if any difficulties come up, the panic mind of, oh no, this is going to be like this for the rest of my life, that panic mind is allayed by saying, well, I can do this for a year. So quite often the negativities or difficulties that we have, 
they change. You get through them and you realize, oh, it's all right too. So doubt or conflict or uh, whatever comes up. And if you, if you get that perspective that it's not permanent and uh, I, can, I can bear with this, I can, I can be with this, then self-doubts or conflicts, they're just part of life and they're no big deal. But if one makes an overly grand commitment and I must do this for the rest of my life, a kind of vow, and one can get trapped into some kind of idealism. And so this is quite a good, quite a good form, I think. It works quite well. So the determination to live by the, both the precepts and, and the ways of the monastery, the routines and the different uh, ways we, we live here, the willingness to take admonishment, to be training from instruction from the bhikkhu sangha, that's quite important. And the relationship to the teacher, where you, um, you've taken dependence on, a, on myself as the teacher, as a kind of representative of the sangha. Dependence isn't a word we really like in Western culture. It doesn't maybe have such a good sanya. But in, in the way of Asian religion, to be with the teacher, to have the humility and, and the yearning to take instruction is, is a very good thing because it requires some lessening of the ego, some humility, and, but then one also profits from the experience of others, from the um, willingness of others to offer their experience. So your burden is mine and my burden is yours, and we, we, we undertake to care for each other in a way which is uh, hopefully significant, which is significant. So your, your well-being is my concern, your enlightenment is my concern, and my well-being is your concern, and my enlightenment is your concern. And this is just a beautiful mutuality of, of respect and care and uh, commitment. So not only do you commit yourself to be here, for a year I commit myself and the Sangha all of us commit ourselves to uh, helping you be a summoner. And this is quite, quite special, very special. So your, your sense of this kind of mutual sensitivity to each other is a very good one because it requires empathy, where I have to try to empathize with your practice and your challenges, and then you have to sort of try to plug in, well, what, is, what does the old guy need? How can I help him <laughs> in his needs? And that's uh, very much the heart of the ethos of the of the anagarical life is one of service you know, of saying how can I help this community go and and so by helping with the kitchen or helping liaise with the lay people you're making our life possible and for that we are exceedingly grateful because you know, we could not live without that kind of support so you you see this this year as a way of by, by serving the Sangha, you also understand the life of the Sangha. You get a feeling for the Vinaya, the monks' training, and then if you choose to take the brown robe and be a, a seminary and bhikkhu, then you would have, having done this kind of year of service, you would feel very good about, yeah, I'm glad, glad I was able to feed those chaps and look out for them and take them to the dentist and sort stuff out that we can't sort out. So this is a nice, nice attitude. And then within that, our, our duty to you is to make sure that you have 
instruction in Dhamma Vinaya that you have time for your own bhavana to develop, develop your own meditation object, and uh, that you are kind of well integrated into our lifestyle. So that if you choose to be a samanera, you have a good a good sense of that. And that's the training that we get from the Ajahn Chah tradition. White is a very difficult color <laughs> to keep clean. So uh, my condolences on that to you. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, so we contemplate the Four Noble Truths today. And always, mm-hmm. Four Noble Truths is the it's the real uh, elephant footprint teaching where all other all the other teachings fall into that and it's the again a basic format that you that we all try to learn and then we develop uh, we expand right understanding through scripture and through our own our own insights and insights into teachers and then right aspiration or right thought we develop that in our own ways right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. We, we expand on all of those through our readings, through our practice. Um, so like right understanding has a vast array of literature, dependent origination, and all, all manner of definitions. And some people take a lot of concepts, and some don't take so many concepts. But it all falls within right understanding. And then right understanding is really the liberation of the heart, the pathway to liberate the heart from suffering. So suffering, its cause, its end, and the path leading to the end of suffering. And then that, that suffering has to be understood, the cause has to be abandoned, and the cause is attachment to craving. And that craving does have an end. They realize the ending of craving, the cessation of craving, and then develop the noble eightfold path for that realization. So we have these Four Noble Truths and these the recommendations or the, the imperatives that we have to apply to suffering it has to be understood. And so whenever there's discontent, whenever there's a sense of lack, whenever there's a sense of uh, confusion, whenever there's a sense of not something not right and self-doubt, then we have to let it become conscious. And that that capacity to make conscious the discontent that we feel is very mature. Because the immature being, being with a lot of dust in their eyes, goes about by blaming oneself or others, by distracting, by compensations of various sorts. Basically, not making conscious suffering. And what we're doing is we're making it conscious. And the containment of monastic life helps that because the avenues of escape are limited, the distractions are limited, the lifestyle is repetitive, so any kinds of discontent that we come out quite often have patterning in them that we can begin to see, because they arise again and again, either vis-a-vis one person or vis-a-vis the structure or uh, whatever it might be. So the simplicity of monastic life and its seemingly um, tedious repetition is actually part of the design. And the design is that based upon the fact that if you if you have some mode of discontent which is extraordinary in one situation, like you get frightened by a bear or you get some bug in your stomach and you get sick for a week or whatever, 
And that experience comes and goes. You learn a little bit. Sure, you learn to endure and such like. But if, if there's a repeated sense of discontent with a person or a repeated sense of self-doubt around something, this, this repetition of suffering allows you to, to begin to really make it conscious and begin to understand it. And that can be, and it's very, very valuable. Whatever forms of kilesa or defilement we have, they're going to come up in this life because they have their karmic momentum and uh, they'll focus on something in, in monastic life. Again, a person, a schedule, a climate, bugs, deer flies, whatever it is, it'll, it'll focus because that's the only place it can focus. Right? And, and then the containment of monastic life allows you to really look at that and, and say, okay, how can I... How can I be at peace with this situation? One of the contemplations I, I've used a lot is, well, okay, this is my last moment. If I die with this, can I be mindful of it? It's always helped me to, to kind of apply a sense of urgency to my, my own discontents and, and, and uh, troubling habits that I have struggled with. A very strong one. You say, well, if this, this is the last mind moment, or if this is the last mood, it's, it's in my chitta as I'm dying. Wouldn't it be better for me to sort it out right now? So there's a kind of urgency in the midst of one's uh, struggles. And then the, the capacity to, to, to really understand one's suffering, you, you develop all the kind of wholesome, wholesome qualities of contentment with little, obedience to a form, a structure, containment within... Vinaya rules, constant reflection through reading, through study, through hearing, just the empathy to care for each other, to look out for each other, generosity in, in um, learning to serve others rather than this just being a place where I can uh, hang out and do my, 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 you know, my situation. So we develop just a life of, of service and, and, and giving, uh, and you develop a lot of very good heart qualities which is very important in understanding your own suffering because if there's no joy, if there's no beauty, if there's no love, it's very hard because there's no, no brightness, no, no softness. And it becomes, like my personal used to say, this kind of brain surgery without anesthesia. Just this kind of heavy, heavy going. But there is, there, there is, there is love, there is compassion, there is empathy. I know with my mom, my mom loved cherries, and she didn't eat much. She was, you know, she she weighed about ninety pounds, and she was very frail. But she loved cherries, so I just got my brother to ship in industrial quantities of cherries, and I just would set her, set the cherries in front of her, and I and I and I love cherries. Anyway, there'd be a bowl of cherries, and I, you know, I saw how I just wanted her to have all the cherries. I didn't want any. But as a kid, with my brother, it was always like we'd fight the last half cherry. <laughs> I'm going to get my bit of the cherry. But I could see with love, you just want to... You don't want to hold anything for yourself. You just want to... How can I make this person happy? Oh, they, they like cherries. Go for it. You know, have, have some more. And she never got sick, fortunately. <laughs> But, you know, this, this, the loving part of, of monastic life needs to be 
very much um, remembered because like as men we usually quite self-sufficient quite strong you know we have strong will or we have strong ideas of what the practice is and, and uh, which is all good when it's channeled in a correct way but there's also the you know there is all the Brahma Viharas the, the kind of empathy and the being sensitive to where other people are at and being able to pause and look at their needs as well as our own ideas about how to do things that's a beautiful quality and it brings a lot of harmony to the community so consider the Brahma Viharas as, as a very important part of training in a monastery there's, there's the the training of the rules and that deportment and kind of what one does but training of the heart too is very important very important so as you're you know if you're preparing a meal and so on to rejoice in that like the fact that you're you're practicing dana you're making our life possible that doesn't mean you have to make three colored rice <laughs> you can be more simple than that where did you get those colors anyway? <laughs> but, you know, kind of to, to bring in, like, say, like you have the duty to cook. If this life is lived only as a duty, it becomes pretty onerous. You know, it's my duty to cook, right? Not, I'm not saying to do that, but let's say if that were the case, whereas you say, no, this is a good thing. I can, you know, the Sangha can function. The lay people can be here and work and meditate and so on so that there's a sense of karma yoga in it dana which uplift, uplifts the heart and certainly sometimes it is you know you're, you're tired you know you've had a long sitting and you're the guy that has to cook the next day and everyone else has the day off and so on and certainly that and then one watches that the, the feeling like you know, everyone everyone in a monastery always gets the feeling that they're doing more than everyone else it's very common uh, yeah doing so much and these other these others aren't doing anything so that's a common perception that we all have and if it's you know if it's true we try to make our life equitable our work is you know, sort of distributed but that that mind which is always uh, seeing fault or, or complaining or something you kind of always can make that conscious in the first noble truth so to really make conscious all oh, this is complaining so that the negative part of ego is um, awakened to, but then there's that cultivation of the heart and the beautiful quality of giving and self-surrender. In the um, abandonment of, of craving, quite often we talk about that, but sometimes we don't talk enough about the realization of the end of craving. So the abandonment of craving, kamatana, bhavatana, vibhavatana, kamatana, just the the kind of preoccupation of a hedonistic mind. And hedonism isn't necessarily sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It can just be constantly absorbing into any object, really. Any object, computer screens, or even, I, I suppose, dharma talks. It could be kind of just gluttoning on dharma. I can't imagine, but so perhaps that's possible. <laughs> but basically, it's the, the kamatana is this kind of constant preoccupation with the khandas in some kind of sensual way. And uh, that preoccupation, sometimes we don't even see the craving that is driving that because we're so preoccupied with sense experience, we don't even see the energy behind it. When it's frustrated, we see it because we can't do what we want to do. But 
the non-preoccupation with sense experience can also be realized. So if you look at kamatanha, what's the difference between just being kind of mesmerized by something or preoccupied with something and just knowing that this is a sense experience, this is a pleasant sense experience, this is an unpleasant sense experience, that that knowing is the, you could say to some extent, the cessation of craving because now there isn't an ego involvement, there isn't a kind of drivenness, I have to do this or or I don't, I shouldn't be doing this, there isn't that kind of uh, discontent and uh, that kind of suffering in the mind because one is just with sense experiences that is. So this is one way to, to a very gentle way of looking at the third noble truth, the realization of cessation. And there are obviously levels of cessation in in terms of tanha, but just that garden variety of realization, oh this is this is sense experience. It's known as an ichidukanata and I, I'm not lost in it. I just know just that. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Uh, and they realize that that's important. And that, that, that's an important realization because then one keeps enhancing that, keeps knowing that, making it stronger. And in the same way, bhava and vibhava, bhava becoming and vibhava, kind of annihilation. You think about vibhava, the whole ways that human beings can get into that vibhava tanha from suicide to just um, not wanting an emotion. The whole range from low level waking up and wishing it was you you didn't exist, wishing you didn't have to face this day, wishing this mind wasn't the way it was, wishing this body wasn't the way it was, just kind of low level grumbling mindset to extreme self negation, self hatred, self judgment, to suicide. Or just to try and trying to get rid of something as you're developing your meditation object, trying to get rid of restlessness, trying to get uh, rid of dullness, trying to get rid of rather than understanding. So vibhava has many, you know, has a whole gradation of possibilities from the extreme to the subtle. And then to realize that, that sometimes it's not like that. You're not trying to get rid of anything. You're not judging anything. You're not... You're not trying to replace it with anything. There's just there's just the suchness of non-resistance. Oh yeah, this is non-resistance, and it might be in a very neutral moment when things are comfortable. But still, look at that non-resistance, a cessation of resistance. So that when resistance comes up, the bhava comes up, you, you kind of you see the tension of it. You see the struggle with it. Oh, well, what's non-resistance? So so by taking its opposite or its so negation, non-resistance, non-infatuation. You get a sense of what cessation might mean, or a, a pathway. Yeah? And then bhava, the kind of, um, sort of becoming, um, trying to get something, trying to get somewhere, being worried about something in the future, trying to figure something out, trying to attain something, trying to manipulate someone to get something, trying to, this, this, this bhava, this kind of, birth energy constantly coming out. But sometimes it's not there. Sometimes there is no sense of becoming. Sometimes your mind just drops into a peaceful state. And you're not you're not trying to manipulate or become anything through memory, through reading. There's just a sense of ease with this moment and no so that. oh, that's important. And note that, realize that. This is this is cessation of Baba. There's no Baba here. 
Well, certainly there are many levels. We talk about different levels of ego and self or selfies and so on. But just that, again, ordinary garden variety of non-becoming. And then cultivate that. I just learned to cultivate that when you finished your do some work and just learn to just sit in a chair and look non-becoming so that this life isn't one of just constantly striving to get somewhere but remembering to be here so that when you enter your meditation then the entry into the meditation is more and more free of tanha free of bhava, free of vibhava and not just a preoccupation with some object but awareness of the object is an ichidukhanata and so that non-becoming, non-resistance, non-infatuation, non-preoccupation are words which can be very uh, awakening, very edifying. The language is pointed to something that you realize. This is the way of insight. You know, yeah, non-becoming. And then as you realize that, that those are important states of mind, you learn to recognize them, you learn to enhance them, you learn to sustain them, you learn to use your object of meditation from non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, more and more. And so the bhavana, this pathway of our life of liberation, is, is then based upon understanding those two truths. And then the effort we put forth, the samadhi, the mindfulness, is based on right understanding. And the more we practice right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, then our understanding is deepened. It's a positive feedback loop or something like that I don't know the science of it but the more subtle you understand tanha and you understand what the abandonment of it but also the realization of its non-existence it's not being there insight becomes a much more available possibility because the mind has this space and has this freedom now because it's not grasping the kundas to get or to get rid of and so insight becomes more subtle, more profound, and more meaningful, and that just enhances, again, the whole aspect around tanha and letting go, non-grasping. So it's a really beautiful, beautiful teaching that, that's very pragmatic. Very, very pragmatic. You just need to know it, and like I said, I suggested that word in the Buddha, so study it, and, and get to really get those words and ideas as your kind of reflective vehicle, very, very helpful, so that the the, the, con- the conflicts or challenges you face are, are always imbued with right right investigation, shall we say. You're investigating in the right way according to the teachings of the Buddha, rather than just a haphazard sort of recognition. Yeah, I feel I'm not feeling all that great, but actually, you use you use the the, the difficulties you have as ways of, of really gaining insight into your own conditioning, into your own mind, into your own causes of suffering. So it becomes very, very meaningful. All right, I'll leave that with your reflection.